take your Bibles out and turn to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 45. We have five more sermons in my schedule that I plotted out to finish the book of Genesis, hopefully, Lord willing, the second week of December. And this morning we find ourselves in the continuing saga of Joseph, the favored son of Jacob. He is the the great-grandson of Abraham, the father of the faith. And after being sold into slavery by his jealous brothers, we've seen him now over the course of the last few weeks and over the period of over 20 years in his own life, the ups and the downs, the highs and the lows, until now Joseph is second in command in the nation of Egypt. He is overseeing and administrating the distribution of Egypt's massive grain reserve, a grain reserve, mind you, that he administered for them to develop. He is doing this during a time of intense famine and literally starvation in the world. And it is through that process of him giving personal oversight to the the grain reserve of Egypt that he happened to, just happened to, what are the chances, come face to face with his brothers who came to Egypt hearing there was grain to be purchased there. His estranged brothers, over the course of several weeks, He issued a series of tests upon them, and he came to learn that they indeed were changed men. They were genuinely and truly repentant of their sin. And so we saw that last week he revealed himself to them as Joseph, their long estranged brother, and we got to rejoice with them some 3,700 years later at the glorious reconciliation of this family. And it pictures for us the reconciliation we can have with God. Well, after revealing himself to these brothers, he compels them to hurry. He said it twice. Hurry, get back home, get dad, and bring him here to me so that his heart can be revived by seeing his son Joseph. And that's where we find ourselves today in chapter 45. We're gonna begin in verse 16. We're gonna read the rest of chapter 45, and we're we're gonna look at most of chapter 46 though we're not going to read the genealogy and all the names. So you can be uh, comfortable in that uh, for this morning's message. Let's look in our Bibles, beginning of verse 16 of Genesis 45. Here's God's word. Hear it. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this. Load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours." The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, 10 donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, do not quarrel on the way. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father, Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb for he did not believe them. 
But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Chapter 46, verse 1. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones and their wives and the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt. Jacob and all his offspring with his sons, his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring, he brought with him into Egypt. Now, again, verse 8 through 25 is the list of some 70 names of Jacob's descendants. Let's skip down to verse 26. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. Now, the title of my message this morning is this, Do Not Be Afraid. And I'll just tell you, I lifted those four words right from the text we just read. In verse 3 of chapter 46, as God appears to Jacob and speaks his word to him, he issues those four words in English. He says, do not be afraid. I'm the God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. You know, there are all kinds of fears in this world that can assail our hearts, aren't there? There's all kinds of phobias that can afflict us. You know, there's lots of phobias you've probably heard of or are familiar with, or maybe you even struggle with yourself. I've got a list of a few of them, and we've got arachnophobia. It's a fear of spiders. Anybody afflicted by that? Acrophobia, fear of heights. Claustrophobia, fear of closed-in spaces. Glossophobia, what I'm doing right now, fear of public speaking. Dentophobia, some of you have this, a fear of dentists. Hemophobia, a fear of blood. Ophidiophobia, fear of snakes. And xenophobia, fear of strangers. Now, just think about these right here. Go back to that one. The, the previous. These are really, a lot of them are, come from a rational place, right? If you have acrophobia, fear of heights, well, what happens? Why, why is that a reality? Well, there's such thing called as gravity, right? If you fall off the high place, you'll plunge to your death. A fear of snakes or spiders. Well, they can be poisonous. They can hurt you. They can harm you. They can even kill you. But there are some phobias that people deal with that are, in my opinion, are not very rational. But these have been cataloged by human psychologists. Here's a few of them. Anthrophobia is the fear of flowers. I'm not sure what flowers ever did to anybody. Bibliophobia is the fear of books. I think this one was made up by a high school student trying to get out of his summer reading, right? Here's a really awkward one, genophobia, fear of knees. And finally, hippopotamonstrous esquidaliophobia, the fear of long words. 
We, these are actual. I looked them up. These are true. You can believe everything on the internet, right? There are all kinds of phobias that can afflict us, that are confronting us, and with varying degrees of fearfulness that are represented in those. And though there are risks, though there are dangers that are always present in life, the overarching word of God to us is, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Now, does that mean we're foolhardy? Does that mean we don't walk in wisdom? Does that mean we disregard warning signs of potential threats to us personally or corporately? Does it mean we don't take appropriate precautions to mitigate the risks? Of course not. What it does mean is in the midst of those risks and threats, even with impending danger lurking, we can walk with a confident hope. We can walk in full assurance of faith. Why? Because God says, do not be afraid. In the passage we just read, I want to point out four reasons from this text that Jacob did not have to be afraid and that, Christian, you and I do not have to be afraid. Here's what they are. First of all, number one, don't be afraid. Why? Because God's provision is astonishing. God's provision is astonishing. In verses 16 through 20 of chapter 45, the Bible records Pharaoh's response upon hearing the news that Joseph's brothers were in the palace and that Joseph was reconciled to them. I think this is an indication of the respect that Pharaoh had for his second-in-command, Joseph. Joseph had done such an incredible job at managing, of leading, of going through all that they went through over the last now nine years that he had incredible respect for him. In fact, verse 16 says, it pleased Pharaoh to hear this. That's a fascinating statement, especially given the fact that Egyptians were known to despise foreigners. Egyptians were known to despise outsiders. And even if you look ahead to what we'll study next week, at the end of chapter 46, the end of chapter 46 says, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. What are the family of Jacob? They're all shepherds. But yet, Pharaoh has incredible respect for Jacob and for Joseph. But word of this reunion of these brothers together, that word begins to spread. All of a sudden, the entire palace, all the staff, all the attendants, the entire court, the word is a buzz. Oh, my goodness. They knew Joseph's story, at least in part. They knew of his meteoric rise from being accused as a Hebrew slave of raping or attempting rape on the police chief's wife, to being in prison, to all of a sudden one day, he's now second in command in Egypt. So certainly word is buzzing around about this lonely Hebrew, isolated Semite who is now surrounded by family. So Pharaoh has this astonishing provision. He says, I'm going to give to your family. He pledges towards them. He commands that their beasts be loaded with all kinds of provision. Then he amazingly says, not only that, I want you to bring your father back here, bring back his, his children, their children, and I'm going to give your family, Joseph, and the family of your father the best property in all of Egypt, the land of Goshen. I will supply all of their needs. Don't be concerned. Don't be afraid because the provision will be astonishing. But what's astonishing about this is that they are destitute. They're impoverished. 
They're hungry. They're poverty-stricken people. And what an unlikely source for their rescue, this pagan, idolatrous king of Egypt. And friends, this was not just an invitation. This was a command from Pharaoh. I'm telling you, bring your family back here. I'm telling you, I'm commanding you, bring them here for me to take care of them. And so there's going to be this massive caravan of followers going together. What provision, what amazing gifts. Now, humanly, I believe this was an act of thanksgiving on Pharaoh's behalf for all that Joseph had done in his management and leadership in Egypt. But we know who's behind this. We know who's moving things and orchestrating things. It's none other than God. God is showing his people here. There's no need to fear. There's no need to be afraid because I will meet all your needs. And then Joseph himself adds to the provisions that Pharaoh had pledged for the family. He says, I'm going to send even more stuff back with you. I'm going to give each of you a change of clothes, which would have been a luxury in that day and time. To Benjamin, if you noticed, he says in Benjamin, oh, by the way, here's 300 shekels of silver, an incredible amount of money, and five changes of clothes. He had a great wardrobe. Now, he sends all these with 20 donkeys loaded with food and astonishing provision. And did you notice Joseph's instruction as he sent them on the way? Look at it again in verse 24. Then he, that's Joseph, sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, do not quarrel on the way. You guys on your way back home, 500 miles by foot, don't argue. Don't fight along the way. Now, now, why would he be worried about that? I mean, there's been complete reconciliation. He's blessed them. They've hugged and kissed one another. What could they possibly have to quarrel about? Well, some have suggested, well, Maybe they're going to quarrel because he did give Benjamin 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes and kind of left them out to dry. I don't think that's what it is. Here's what I think they had the potential to quarrel about. They knew this whole long journey home, this lie they had been telling their father for over 20 years, they were going to have to come clean. This cover-up, they've been speaking to their father for two and a half decades. They're going to now have to spill the beans. You know, nobody likes to tell their dad when they've done something wrong. Sons, you can identify with this. When I was in fifth grade, I did something in school one day that was particularly heinous. I won't tell you what it was. And so immediately, I got sent to the principal's office, discipline referral in hand. You guys remember those three carbon copy things? None of y'all got those besides me. I got them often. Um, so I'm walking to the principal's office with this discipline referral in hand. Now, here's what you need to know. My mom worked at the school, and she usually found out about my misdeeds in class before I even made it to the principal's office, and she was usually there to meet me. I'm, I'm sure she loved getting the announcement on her intercom in the classroom. Troy's going to the office. Oh, great. Not again. So I'm there at the office. I get the discipline, the licks from the principal. Mr. Yamalak was his name. After school, I did my normal routine. I went to her classroom, waited for her to finish things up, and then we got in her car, and we were going to go home. Well, this day, after I did this horrible act of embarrassment to my family, we first go to the grocery store, and like normal when we go to the grocery store, she lets me pick out my favorite cereal on the cereal aisle. Any guys remember doing that? It's awesome. Then on the way from the grocery store headed home, she pulls into this roadside fruit and vegetable stand, and she buys a flat of fresh strawberries. And here I am, guilty Troy, sitting in the front seat of my mom's car, window down, 
cool breeze going through my hair, eating fresh strawberries and throwing the stems out the window. Life is good. Then all of a sudden she says, by the way, Troy, when you get home, you're going to have to tell your dad what you did today. <laughs> right? Some of y'all have known that sinking feeling of that heart just going down into your gut. Here's these brothers. They've got 500 miles to think about it. We're going home to tell dad what we've done. We're going home to confess our culpability in this enslavement of our brother. What would he say? Perhaps Simeon was going to say, you know, it's Reuben's fault. <laughs> I told you, Reuben, he's the ringleader of this whole deal. Or maybe Judah would say, Dad, I tried to get him to pull him out of the pit. I tried to rescue him. Joseph says, guys, you're guilty. On your way home, don't quarrel about it. Just speak the truth. Even this morning as we prepare to come to the Lord's table, we've all got junk, don't we? But I want you to consider God's astonishing provision. As we come clean before the Lord, provision has been made. Now, they had physical provision that would meet their needs, and it was abundant, it was overwhelming, but Pharaoh's palace is meager compared to the provision of God in Christ. Because in Christ, we just don't have physical provision that satisfies our, our temporary hungers. We have eternal provision that satisfies the very needs of our souls. So as we come to the table today, God is saying to us, do not be afraid because of my astonishing provision for you in Christ and his work represented in the, the blood and the body, the, the fruit of the vine and the bread. Here's the second reason why we don't have to be afraid. Number two, God's promised son is alive. <laughs> God's promised son is alive. As the sons return to their father and bring the news, it's recorded their words in verse 26. This is, I guess, what they settled on saying. Let's lead with this, guys. <laughs> Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. How did Jacob respond? His heart became numb, for he did not believe them. Think about it. How much have these brothers lied to their dad over the years? How much have they covered over their misdeeds? Lying had become really second nature to them. You know anybody like that? When something comes out of his or her mouth, there's a 50-50 shot it's going to be a lie. These guys were brilliant at lying and weaving untruths. That's where Jacob is with these sons. Upon this announcement, again, his heart became numb. He didn't believe their testimony until, look at verse 27. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father, Jacob, revived. He goes from numb, dead inside, to alive. It wasn't just that all these brothers agreed on the same story. They'd done that before. It wasn't even just that Benjamin had come back and even Simeon, who was languishing in prison. It was the words of Joseph spoken through the testimony of the brothers, and it was the evidence, the overwhelming evidence, that what they were saying was true. These could have been amazing 
things to see. It says that they sent these wagons. Now, this would have been like, in our day, spaceships coming from another galaxy. These wagons were ornate. They were the height of modern technology in Egypt. They had never seen any kind of vehicle like this ever in the land of Canaan. And so here are all these ornate, overloaded wagons from Egypt. And as Jacob sees them through his 130-year-old eyes, he says, what they're saying must be true. You see, it was the overwhelming evidence coupled with the brother's testimony that brought faith in Jacob's heart. And it's interesting, it's right here at his point of belief that the narrative changes from calling him Jacob to Israel. When he believed the testimony of the men and he trusted in the verifiable evidence, there was a change in his identity. Can you relate? Think about all the fears that Jacob had experienced over the years. I mean, the first time he sent his boys to go get food in Egypt a couple years ago, he held Benjamin back. Why? Because he was afraid. He was afraid that harm would befall the only other remaining son of his beloved wife, Rachel. And then after all that food ran out, they needed to go back again. And the boy said, there ain't no way, Dad, we can go back unless we bring Benjamin with us. The man told us so. And again, in fear, he says, surely my soul's going to go to the grave in sorrow because my son Simeon's gone, I've already lost Joseph, and now I'm going to lose Benjamin too. And it was this twofold witness. He spoke, God did, through the brothers. They told him all the words of Joseph and the evidence, the wagons that they had sent. The same is true for us, isn't it? There are no writings of Jesus that remain today. None. He didn't write any books. He didn't publish any journal articles. All we have about Jesus is the testimony of these knucklehead disciples. But their word is true. Jesus is alive. How do we know that? Because of the verifiable evidence. We know he's alive because first he appears to the women at the grave early that Sunday morning. Then he appears to Peter and then the 12 and then Thomas and then later Paul is one who was untimely born and he appears to as many as 500 people over 40 days making appearance after appearance after appearance there is not another experience or miracle in human history that is as verifiable as the resurrection of jesus christ from the dead jesus is alive and the same should be true for us just as joseph's heart went from numbness to being revived when we consider the fact jesus is alive we should go from this numbness to life. And that doesn't just apply to now. That applies to the future. We're a month and a half away from turning the calendar from 2020. I know many of us are looking forward to January 1, 2021. But we don't know what 2021 holds. We don't know that things might even get worse. We don't know that as we look back on 2020, we might say, well, that was a pretty good year comparatively. Some of you are thinking, don't jinx it, Troy. There's no such things as jinx, okay? (laughs) We don't know what the future holds for us. Are we to enter this next decade with anxiety, fear, and worry? There are some things 
I'm rather certain of, we will see in 2021, increased persecution of Christ's church. There's some things I'm pretty sure we're going to see in this nation. Diminished religious liberty. There are some things I'm pretty sure we're going to see happen in 2021. A further spiraling downward of our culture into reprobate sin. Things make it worse. Do we enter the year with fear? With worry? Anxiety? Do we just wallow in despair and cry, oh, woe is me? No, listen, Jesus is alive. This past week, I all but finalized my preaching calendar for 2021. As has been my practice over the last 14 years, I plan out 12 months of preaching in November. And as I landed on April 4th, which is Easter Sunday, and where just coincidentally I landed on the text of expositionally preaching from the book we're going to look at next year, we are going to be, I was almost raptured out of my office this week. We're going to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus, not every Sunday only, but Easter Sunday. And the life of Jesus gives us confidence, gives us hope, gives us assurance that no matter what happens, Jesus is alive. Because God's provision is astonishing. Do not be afraid. Because God's promised son is alive. Do not be afraid. Here's the third thing. Because God's purpose is assuring. God has a purpose. Now, obviously, a few things transpire between chapters 45 and 46. And, you know, it's one thing to be ecstatically happy that you discover your long-lost son you thought was dead is actually alive. And it's altogether another thing to then load up your family on these strange-looking wagons, load up your flocks and your herds and your possessions, and go by foot the 500-mile journey away to this foreign land you've never been to, Egypt. Jacob is obviously cautious before he embarks on this journey. You know, anytime our family goes on a long trip or a vacation, before we leave the driveway, we are there parked in the family truckster (laughs) preparing for our lampoon vacation. And what do we do in that driveway? We pray. We pray. We pray, obviously, for God's protection and for his care, but I also pray over my family. God, help our fellowship to be sweet as we are cramped in this van for the next nine hours. What does Jacob do before this journey with his family? He prays. There in Beersheba, he goes to the southernmost part of the promised land. He's not going on vacation. He's doing something far more challenging. He's uprooting his entire family clan and moving them 500 miles away. Obviously, questions were in his mind. Am I making the right move here? Am I going in the right direction? I'm 130 years old. (laughs) And now he's taking his children to this pagan culture that worships hundreds of gods. How could he be sure that his family would not be drawn away from Yahweh, the one true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Is Egypt the right place for the people of God to be? Is it safe for the covenant family? Jacob has cause for concern. For one, his family doesn't have the best track record with Egypt. You think to Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, he went down to Egypt during a family, famine, excuse me, and what did he do? 
He lied about his relationship with his wife. He said, oh, she's just my sister. And thereby, he threatened the very lineage of Abraham's descendants, that she could have been abused sexually. He threatens the family line of Messiah. And he's judged for it. And then Jacob's own father, during another famine, God speaks to him clearly in Genesis 26, verse 2, says, Do not go down to Egypt. Two famines, two opportunities in Egypt, two strikes against his family. Now here's number three. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, is compelling, commanding me to come. Joseph, my own long-lost son, is compelling, commanding that I come. And here he is in Beersheba. Should he stay or should he go? Should he endanger the covenant line of descendants through the influence of this pagan culture by going to Egypt? Or would he endanger the covenant line by staying in Canaan and perhaps risk famine and starvation? So many fears assaulting Jacob's soul. So what does he do? He prays before the journey. He builds an altar. He makes sacrifices before God. He confesses sin. He seeks the face of the Lord. And God speaks to him. Look again at verse 2. And God spoke to Israel, that's Jacob, in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. In the 66 books of the Bible, there are 15 times when God speaks to someone, a human, with two words of their name. Jacob, Jacob. Every once in a while, it's a warning. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? But typically, as it is here, it's a sign of intimacy of relationship. Jacob has heard the voice of God before. Remember when he was a young man and deceived his brother out of the blessing of their father, Isaac, and he's running away from the plot and the threat of being murdered by his brother Esau. He ran just as far as his tired legs would carry him. He came to rest and use a stone for a pillow, and there God revealed himself and spoke in the night vision, and he saw a ladder ascending and descending from heaven to earth, and angels were on this ladder, and God spoke his promises over Jacob. He'd heard the voice of God before, and now it's unmistakable he hears it again after so many years. And as God speaks to him, Jacob says, here I am. Here I am. And then the Lord reveals four purposes for Jacob in going down to Egypt. I want you to see what they are real quickly. First of all, there's the purpose of multiplication. Multiplication. God says, there I will make you into a great nation. Now, this was the same promise God had spoken to his grandfather, Jacob, excuse me, Abraham, except God adds a word here. The word is there. There. In Egypt. I will make you into a great nation. What is he saying? He's saying, Jacob, I'm not confined to zip codes. <laughs> I can accomplish my purposes wherever, however, I want to accomplish them. The promise still stands. You're going to be made into a great nation. You're going to be multiplied. He goes down into Egypt with 70. 400 years later, the descendants of Israel come out 2 million strong. I would say God's word is true. Multiplication is the first purpose we see here in this speech from God to, to him. Second, habitation. Habitation. God promises his manifest 
presence. God promises his personal habitation. Look at this next one with me. He says, I will go down. We got that next slide. There we go. I myself will go down with you to Egypt. In the Hebrew, it's emphatic. It's not just, I will go down with you. I myself will go down with you. There will be no mistaking my presence, my power. Again, he's saying, listen, I am Yahweh. I am. I'm not a little God G, a little G God. I'm a big G God. I'm not some tribal God from these local ethnicities. I'm the God not only of Canaan. I'm the God of Egypt. I'm the God of the world. I'm the God who spoke the universe into existence. Here's the third purpose in going to Egypt. Letter C, restoration. Restoration. He says, I will also bring you up again. What is this promise of restoration? The promise of restoration is referring back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's descendants coming back into the promised land of Canaan. He said, you're leaving the promised land now, but I'm going to restore your people. I'm going to restore the covenant line. You will not be in Egypt forever. But here's the fourth one, consolation. There's a promise of consolation. God says to Jacob, Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Think about this for a second. What a rush of emotion for Jacob. He's just recently learned that his son, Joseph, he thought was dead. He was thought mauled by wild animals. He's got the bloody coat of many colors to prove it. Is not only alive, not only ruling over the land of Egypt, but this very son, Joseph, will be the one that on his deathbed will close his eyes in death. He was always fearful. My soul shall go to the grave in sorrow. God says, that's not going to happen. You're going to go to the grave rejoicing. God's got a purpose, and that purpose is assuring. And let me ask you, do you know that like Jacob? God's got a purpose. God's got a purpose for you that he's spoken over you through his word and through his spirit for your life. And that purpose assures us as we go forward. God speaks those four words, even today. Do not be afraid. But that leads finally, as we move towards a conclusion, the fourth thing we see from this passage, and that is this. Number four, God's people are affirming. God's people are affirming. Now, I've told you before, Bible students, that one of the things we look for when we study a passage of Scripture is repeated words repeated phrases. And we'll see this in chapter 46 in a few places. I want you to see them in the final verses we'll consider this morning. First in verse 6 and 7, we see this. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob, and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Now look at verse 26 and 27, just a part of that all the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt. Verse 27, all the persons of the house of Jacob. You see what's being communicated here? Not one was left out. There is an incredible uh, reunification and intimacy of this family, all of his offspring, all of the persons, all the people together. Now, I believe if you were to look up a pictorial dictionary and look up the words dysfunctional family, it would have Jacob's family there. They were dysfunctional. What we've seen in our study of Jacob and Joseph, there was hatred, jealousy, envy, ridicule, manipulating, conniving, grasping. They were the epitome 
of a dysfunctional family. And now it has all turned around. Now they are really a model for Christian community. But what is that? How are they modeling? Loving each other, providing for one another's needs, consoling one another in times of loss, confessing their sins to one another. What a great God we serve. As they go down into pagan Egypt, all kinds of fears could assail them. All kinds of anxieties could have dominated their thinking. They would be strangers in a strange land. They talk differently than the Egyptian culture. They think differently than the Egyptian culture. They have a completely different God-centered biblical worldview, unlike the Egyptian culture. They would be outsiders, foreigners, strangers in a strange land. Sound familiar? This is the church today. But by God's grace, he's given us a family. Welcome home. (laughs) That's why we say it. Because we're family. And God has not called us to move away from one another as the culture becomes more and more Egyptianized, but to press in towards one another. Exactly what Hebrews 10 tells us to do in verse 24 and 25. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. As we see 2021, Turning on the calendar, friend, we are to press in deeper into Christian community, deeper into the relationships of our spiritual family. We don't pull away, we press in. Church, that's what we're going to attempt to do even this morning as we come to the Lord's table. I shared in our private church Facebook group this week that it's almost nine years ago now that we transitioned the frequency of us observing communion. Most Baptist churches observe communion, take the Lord's Supper once a quarter, maybe. But we determined almost nine years ago that we were going to do it monthly. And our aim included, among other things, was that we believed communion will create unity. As we come to this table, it brings unity in the body. Why? Because we prepare ourselves to receive this meal. We examine our own lives. We think about, are are there broken relationships that need to be mended? What does that do? Fosters unity. As we think about, as we look at the bread and we think about the body that was broken for us, as we look at the fruit of the vine, the juice, and we think about the blood that was shed for us, we think about our absolute need of a Savior. What does that do? Fosters unity. As we look at these elements, as we symbolically remember the work of Christ on the cross, it reminds us that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. None of us brings anything to Jesus. We all just receive of his grace. You know what that does? Fosters unity. There's something incredible, incredibly unifying about communion. This is our family meal. This is our fellowship supper together. And so this morning, as we prepare to receive this communion meal, bring your fears to the Lord, listen to his word, consider the evidence of the resurrected son, and press into the family. I'm gonna pray for us. First, here's my last thought. The fears that would assail our hearts find no place to dwell 
when we meditate on the faithfulness of God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.